Well, good morning. Thank you so much for gathering here this morning and for uh, bringing the church into a YMCA gymnasium. It's so good to be able to gather with you all. My name is Jamie. It's my absolute privilege to serve here as one of the pastors at Crosspoint. And if we've never met, I'd love to get an opportunity just to uh, say hello after uh, the service. And just so glad that you're here. We are in week three of a four-week vision series. I started this a couple weeks ago called The Church Recovered. And we're looking at our mission as a church as we start the fall together. But with that, believing that the Lord has for us this call to be a faithful presence, all right, in a world that's full of darkness and the absences, an absence that is felt oftentimes, and maybe the world doesn't always know how to put their finger on it, and kind of like, what's going on? But I feel like maybe I've achieved a lot, and yet I feel still this sense of emptiness, and there's this longing. We have an opportunity to point them to the presence of God. Like, we don't fill that void for them, but we point them to Jesus, and that's what our mission is all about as a church. And so we want to look, though, what are some practices, in fact, four things we're calling our church to, to recover so that we might be that faithful presence? And so as we've looked at each week, our mission as a church, all right, big picture, all right, Jesus said to go and make disciples. And so this is just some of the language we use around that. We believe people need to be pointed to Jesus. Like you can't make a disciple of Jesus if you don't tell them about Jesus. So we're going to point them to Jesus, to this good news of who he is, his life, death, and resurrection. And then what we're praying would happen as people get pointed to Jesus all right, is that they would come to know God, and we looked at that in the first week, not just intellectual information about God, but this is relational language here. It's not so that you would win Bible trivia, but that you might actually know your creator, that you would find freedom, not the way that the world defines freedom as sort of just throwing off all restraint, but actually coming under God, submitting to him as king, and actually finding liberation and freedom that you were created for in the personal work of Jesus we're going to look at experience belonging. We'll talk about that th this morning. And then next week we'll finish out by looking at this call to be about seeking renewal. And there's overlap with all of these things. And so the first week we looked at knowing God and recovering our confession, making the sure the gospel is central to everything. Last week we looked at recovering our dependence, that we can't find freedom unless we realize that we are needy, broken people. We cry out to the Lord, Lord, we need you to intervene. And then we look, we're going to be looking this morning at experience belonging. And so here's how I want you to think about this. It's experience belonging. And the, the practice I believe that we need to recover is recovering our hospitality. What does that look like as a church? And there's a lot of different things I think that probably pop in your mind when you hear hospitality, and I hope to dispel some of those things. I think there's a pressure sometimes we put on ourselves. Maybe immediately your mind goes to like the most Pinterest-worthy, Instagram-worthy thing, and you're just like, I can't do that. Like, have you seen my, my house? Or I don't know how to even engage in this. We can simplify, and I'll talk about that more in a moment. But let's talk kind of big picture for just a moment. This idea of experience belonging, we long for community. Like you and I were created for community and we live increasingly in a world that is more and more isolated and fractured and divided and all the tribalism and things that kind of pop up, I think showcases for us that we're looking to just identify, we're looking to belong, even if it's the things that are unhealthy sometimes, we're just like, can we just have some sort of sense of like, okay, I fit in with this group. I don't think a lot has changed ever since we entered middle school, all right? We continue to, to live this out of like, where am I gonna sit at lunch and where, who am I gonna talk to and who's gonna talk to me and will I be welcome? We long for an experience of true belonging. And this goes all the way back to how you and I were created. Genesis 1, verse 26, it says this. Then God said, this is the creation account, let us make man, let us make humanity, what? In our image after our likeness. 
Do you notice the plural there? In our image. So what we know about the God of the universe and we're made in his image is there's the Father, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That God has always existed in this beautiful Trinitarian community. And so if you and I are made in his image, that means we're gonna also be designed in such a way to experience belonging, to experience community that we actually, all right, we've been created in such a way that we need one another. This is why the Lord would look out over his beautiful creation in Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And certainly this is talking about the first marriage that we see in the scriptures of Adam and Eve, but it's speaking also to just a bigger longing that all of us have, right? We're not created. It is not good for us to be alone. Too much isolation. And it's possible in this day and age to be surrounded by lots and lots of people and yet to be isolated. To have lots and lots of social connections, be it online or just casual sort of interactions as you go about your work or in your neighborhood. And we're not dismissing those things. But at the same time, there is this longing to really be known. And it's only as we understand what Jesus has done for us that we can sort of risk being vulnerable with other people and to welcome people in and to be welcomed by other people. And so this morning we're going to explore that, that experience belonging. But I think the practice we need to recover then is one of hospitality. Because here's the thing I want us to press into as a church. Though you and I come in this morning caring, like if you're part of this, this church community, one of the things, like we hope you experience belonging, but it's not to terminate on itself. If you're like, cool, I've got some friends, I've made some community, I've made some connections, and now I'm good, all right? We cease to be the church that Jesus has called and commanded us to be because you experiencing a sense of belonging is meant not to terminate on itself, but rather to propel you and I out to actually welcome the stranger and to see strangers go to actual neighbors and ultimately to family. Like, it's not that the church is like a family. The church is the family of God, and we want more people to experience it. So hospitality, all right? Don't think just what you see online and pictures and all that, although it could include that. Here's how you boil it down. Hospitality simply means a love or pursuit of the stranger. Somebody that you and I, you don't know, all right? Maybe they intimidate you. Maybe they don't. doesn't matter. There's this call to love the stranger, fascinating book I would commend to you. I've been reading through, it's by a lady named Rosaria Butterfield called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And what's so fascinating about her story, and we'll get into our main text here in just a moment, but I want you to hear this about the impact that hospitality of love of stranger can happen. And I like the picture that's there. It's like, hey, hospitality, it looks like Fruit Loops. That's amazing, right? Who wants some Fruit Loops right now, okay? Um, I haven't had those in years, but it looks appetizing, all right? Now, in this story, or in this book that she's writing, she recalls a point in, in her story, what the Lord used to bring her to saving faith, and it was back in July of 1997 in Syracuse, New York. She was doing a research project, all right, on the religious right and railing against all that it stood for because she was not only a professor there at Syracuse and just, you know, was doing this project, writing that this book. Um, she was a very outspoken lesbian. Uh, she was somebody that didn't believe anything of the Bible, thought it was oppressive, uh, archaic, all these things. But for her research, she knew enough to know like, hey, I've got to explore this other side. And so she had written this op-ed piece in the local newspaper, and there was a man who wrote her back, and she said it was so interesting, and she came to find out that he was a pastor, uh, and that he was so kind, and he engaged with her, and he didn't, he didn't take shots at her, but he seemed genuinely interested, and so they made this initial connection, and he actually, him and his wife, invited her over for dinner, and so I want to read this to you, um, this section in her story that explains us what does the love of stranger look like? 
So this is July 1997. She says this, going to dinner at the home of Christians was not high on my list of long-for activities. As an out lesbian feminist, a leader in LGBTQ rights, the recent co-author of the first domestic partnership policy at Syracuse University, and a soon-to-be tenured radical, my heart's desire was not to become friends with the enemy. Christians seemed like a small-minded, uncharitable, immoral bunch. They ate meat, they believed in corporal punishment, they violated human and environmental rights at a fevered pitch, denied a woman's right to choose, and believed that the whole world should fall under the totalitarian obedience to the Bible, an ancient book fraught with racism, sexism, and homophobia. They believed in and manufactured superstitions about, quote, sin, which I believe was, as Freud declared, simply a cultural phobia deeply held by dupes whose thinking was manipulated by a universal obsessional neurosis. But mostly, Christians just scared me to death. Our worldviews and the moral lens we used to make sense of things were incommensurable, unbridgeable. But she says, but there I was in their driveway, parking my red Isuzu Amigo truck decorated with my National Abortion Rights Action League bumper sticker and my lesbian decals. I sat there in my truck, readying myself to knock on the front door. All right. These this family welcoming the stranger. She's talking about like how nervous she is to walk in there. There's much more to her story, but I'll pick up here. She says this, so I breathed hard and I hoisted myself out of my truck, nursing a tender hamstring from my morning run, and I waded through the unusually thick July humidity to the front door, and I knocked. And the threshold to their life was like none other. The threshold to their life brought me to the foot of the cross. Nothing about that night unfolded according to my confident script. Nothing happened in the way I expected. Not that night or the years after or the hundreds of meals or the long nights of psalm singing and prayer as other believers from the church and university walked through the door of this house as if no door was there. Nothing prepared me for this openness and truth. Nothing prepared me for the unstoppable gospel and for the love of Jesus made manifest by the daily practices of hospitality undertaken in this one simple Christian home. This Christian home became my two-year refuge and way station long before I ever walked through the doors of the church. The Smith home was the place where I wrestled with the Bible, with the reality that Jesus is who he says he is, and eventually came face to face with him on the glittering knife's edge of my choice sexual sin. Rosaria Butterfield writes of her experience of Experiencing a sense of belonging, not somebody that just said, hey, whatever you want to do is fine, but a genuine love, a pursuit of the stranger. And if that can happen in her life, the reality is like we have such opportunity as the church to love people. And will we take this call? Will we recover this ancient call to extend hospitality? Not just the way you might happen to think about it in a high pressure sense, but just a love, a moving towards the other, moving towards the stranger. And so this morning, as we've been doing in this series, we're looking at different parables of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to look at a well-known parable uh, that wrestles with this question of like, okay, what does it look like to love your neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. So I'd invite you to do this. Turn to Luke chapter 10 if you brought a Bible. If you didn't, there's some paperback ones on the tables in the back. At any point, get up, grab one of those. You can turn to page 962. If you don't own a Bible, if you've got one in some outdated translation, all right, please take that one home with you as a gift. I want you to be able to study along. The other option that you have is to go to cpwp.life on your phone right now. Swipe over to the second card you see that says message notes. And anything that's up on the screen, including the text this morning, will be there. There's space for you to take notes. You can email it to yourself afterwards, those sorts of things. And so I want to look at 
what for many of you perhaps is a well-known story, even just culturally, a good Samaritan, like it's a phrase that people tend to use, but what is it actually all about and what can it teach us about being a faithful presence in this moment, in this time where Jesus has placed us? And so what I wanna look at initially is there's this sort of confrontation, all right? There's a man who's trying to trap Jesus uh, and then there's this command, there's this call that the Lord gives as we look at verses 25 to 29. Here's how it begins. And it says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that's Jesus, to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, well, he said to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And so we begin this section, this well-known parable. Jesus is gonna tell this parable here, but this is sort of the setup, is there's this teacher of the law, there's this lawyer that, that stands up, all right? And he like, said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to have this connection with God? How, all right, it's a valid question. It's a question we should all wrestle with. Like, what does that actually look like? How does one actually achieve? Is it based on achievement or is it a gift? Like, what does it look like to have this sort of security in, in this eternal salvation, this eternal life, to be invited into God's kingdom? Not just someday in the future either, but like right here and right now. But there's a, like there's, a, there's a question sort of beneath the question. There's a subtext to all of this. What I believe that the teacher of the law is actually asking is, Jesus, do you actually take the law seriously? Because in the account of Luke so far, what you've seen over and over again is Jesus having meals with people that are tax collectors, sinners. He's welcoming people in. He doesn't seem to care. And so I think what the teacher of the law, the lawyer might have expected is Jesus to say, you know what, what must you do? Choose your own way. Be true to yourself. All right, just go ahead. Whatever you believe, it's not about rules. None of that. All right, God will love you regardless of what you do. Because the... Pharisees and the teachers of the law and all these religious leaders, increasingly, that was their growing suspicion. They were like, this guy doesn't seem to fit in our categories here. Does he disregard the law? They're wanting to know Jesus to take the law seriously. He's probably not so much interested even in this eternal life. He's trying to trap Jesus. He's trying to get him to confess, you're right, guys, you've pegged me. Yep, I don't actually care about God's law. And it would have been this blasphemy. So Jesus He's brilliant for one, right? What does he do, all right? In case you didn't know that, he's pretty brilliant. All right, he's like, he turns it on him. He's like, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So he's like, all right, you teacher of the law. You're the expert in the law. You've studied all this. Let me flip the script a little bit. I'm gonna ask you, like, what is actually written in the law? How do you read it? Now this man is in a stopping point because he's like, okay, there's like 700 some laws. Like, do I just, okay, well, number one, and we're gonna be here a long time, or as the people in that time and place began to do, they began to develop some shorthand to talk about it, this summary statement. And so when Jesus asked this, the man does reply. And he actually is, so far, this little pop quiz that Jesus springs on him, all right, he actually answers correctly. He says, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, like all of your affections, Everything, the emotions, the will, all of it. There's this totality of things with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Like the totality of your being. And he says, and your neighbor as 
yourself. This is the call of every human being, all right? Whether they acknowledge God or not is to actually love God with all of who they are and then to love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus quite simply says to him, cool, man, good job. Like, you've answered correctly. Just do this and you will live. Now, it seems simple until we stop for just a moment and think about it. Okay, even this morning, have you and I loved God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, like the totality of our being, were all of our affections perfectly oriented to God? Did we wake up this morning and there was nothing that annoyed us, nothing that we got cranky about? There wasn't any little slip up or annoyance in the car on the ride over. The kids all acted perfectly, whatever it was. And even if they didn't, you were just like, praise Jesus, I'm so grateful for these little image bearers that you've given me, or this person on the road that doesn't know how to drive. Praise Jesus for that. I glorify your name. You're just perfect, harmonious, like this worship taking place. No, right? And the teacher of the law knows this. He's like, oh, dang, like, I don't actually know if I can live this out. And I don't even know if I can love a neighbor, let alone God, as myself. And so what does he begin to do? The scriptures tell us he had this desire to sort of justify himself. He's got to limit it to something that's more manageable. Now, I don't know this for sure. This is sort of inferring from the, from the text a bit, but he asks questions about the neighbor part, not about God. Like, I even think there's an arrogance probably in this guy because he doesn't seem to ask any questions about loving God, as if he's got that on lockdown. Oh yeah, I love God perfectly, heart, soul, mind, strength. Oh, but this neighbor bit, let me, let me ask about that. But for whatever reason, he asks, okay, well, who's my neighbor? Because what he's wanting to do, and it's not just him a couple thousand years ago, what I want Jesus to say, and what I think deep down in your heart, if you're being honest, you want Jesus to say, is let me narrowly define it for you so that you actually can attain this. Your neighbor, the people that you're called to love are people that they tend to think just like you, they read the same blogs as you, they listen to the same podcasts as you, they vote like you, they live in the same socioeconomic kind of bracket, they have the same education level as you, they look like you, they like the same foods, they like to hang out. Like, all right, if we could just limit that, maybe we'd have a shot at this, which we even know that's not true. But there's this desire to justify, okay, I'm a little overwhelmed by this, Jesus, so who is my neighbor? And so it's here that Jesus then tells this well-known parable. Look at verse 30 to 37. So Jesus, in response to that question, who is my neighbor, says this. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, right? And this is known for being sort of a treacherous, tre treacherous stretch of, of road, of land. It says, and he fell among robbers. This was not uncommon in that day. But they, who stripped him and beat him, and they departed, leaving him half dead. And now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, which is two like full days of labor's worth of uh, money there, and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Verse 36, Jesus then says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the teacher of the law can only respond as we see in verse 37. He said, the one, he won't even name the Samaritan, he says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do Likewise. 
And so there's this contrast here, right? And you've probably heard this preached on and taught and you've read this and we, there's a lot of details we could dive into. But when you see the priest, the Levite and the Samaritan, they're all traveling the road. The scriptures very clearly tell us as Jesus lays out this parable, all of them saw him. Did you notice that? That was a descriptor that was used of all three of, of these men. It wasn't like, oh, I, I missed that somehow. They all actually saw him. But with the priest who's this religious leader, as well as the, the Levite, and maybe they had good reasons. They didn't want to be uh, defiled if the body was actually dead to, to touch the body. If the man is still half alive, some other commentators have said, well, there's a chance these men who committed this crime were still kind of lurking in, in the shadows, maybe, maybe waiting to finish him off. So maybe it's just a dangerous thing, which it could have been. Or, but for whatever reason, they decide, I got to move to the other side. Let's move away from the issue. Let's move away from the difficulty and let's keep going. Maybe they had other things on their schedule, maybe other things that they're like, hey, I gotta get home for, for this. There are other things that they needed to attend to. But for whatever reason, they move by. But then the Samaritan comes. And the way stories were told oftentimes, as Jesus was this brilliant Jewish storyteller, people oftentimes even expected there to be kind of three characters that would be in a, in a story. And so they hear about the priest, all right? And they hear about the Levite. And if anything, what they might have expected in this moment was like, okay, we kind of get the religious establishment. They don't get it right all the time. You know, we kind of don't like the, those people, the people on the stage with the microphone, they're kind of idiots, all right? So let's, well, we get that, but he's like, what maybe the expectation is, okay, but here's gonna come just the average Jewish man kind of coming along. He's gonna be the hero. He's gonna rescue. We don't need the priest. We don't need the Levite. Like, it's the work of the people. We're gonna do this. That might have been like the surprise twist ending that they were kind of hoping for. But they would have had absolutely no categories for how Jesus tells this story. Because the one that actually stops is a man a Samaritan who was low. They were regarded as the Jews as sort of these half-breeds. They had set up a false temple, all right, so they didn't even worship in the right spot. They, they had all sorts of, they had intermarried during the exile periods, all the, these things. I mean, a common Jewish prayer would be to pray, Lord, may there be no Samaritans when the resurrection occurs. Like, how much do you have to hate somebody to pray that prayer, right? I mean, this was this devotion to this animosity. They didn't want to be reconciled. They weren't hoping like, hey, you know what, that Samaritan, he's pretty nice. We should have him over for dinner. These people were divided, all right? Very fractured, tons of division. Kind of feels like our cultural moment, doesn't it? And so there's this great surprise. This man steps in and begins to care for this man. And so I wanna ask a few questions of this text as we look at this together, all right? And ask us to consider this. What might this be showcasing for us in recovering hospitality. Not this beautiful, ornate meal. This man extended hospitality, why? Because he moved towards, he loved the stranger, one that was different from him, one that had nothing in common. In fact, they were sworn enemies, and yet this man goes and extends love and compassion to this Jewish man that is left half dead. So a few questions to wrestle through. First would be this. Can we just acknowledge sometimes I think we're just fearful of something that's someone that's different from us? Are you scared of the stranger? And maybe, you know, rightly so, when you were growing up and you were told not to talk to strangers, all right, and stranger danger and all that, right? Like, good, good, you should teach your kids that. But at some point, there comes this moment of like, well, just because you don't know the person, or maybe they are, you know enough to know that they're a little bit different from you, doesn't mean we retreat. So Rosaria Butterfield in that book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, says this in regards to our choices. 
So we could either try and just become just like the culture, and that's not the call. I don't believe that's what Jesus has for us, or we can retreat. And so she says, well, one option is to simply just build the walls higher, declare more vociferously that our homes are our castles. How do you view your home? As a gift that's been given to steward well, or is it your castle? And since the world is going to hell in a handbasket, we best get inside, thank God for the moat, draw up the bridge. Well, doing so practices war on this world, but not the kind of spiritual warfare that drives out darkness and brings in the kindness of the gospel. Strategic wall building serves only to condemn the world and the people in it. This kind of war betrays our faith as hollow, vapid, and powerless. And so let me ask you, like, when we think about just the home that God has given to us, the shelter that you have, it can look very different than a lot of different, you know, a lot of people, but you have, I'm assuming, you have some place to lay your head at night. Do you believe that is just your place just for rest and retreat and solitude? Thank God for those things that can be used in that way, but also, do you view it as a gift that the Lord has given you to extend a welcome to the stranger to welcome them in? And so, are you scared? And if so, are you building the walls? Are you seeking to Open up the door and invite people in. I also think it's worth wrestling through this question. Are you and I, are we seeing the stranger? I made mention of it just a moment ago. All three, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. It tells us in the scriptures, as Jesus is telling this parable, they all saw the man. But can we be honest? It's possible to see and not really see. Right? It's possible. There's a professor at the University of Illinois that's conducted an experiment. It's been going on for some 25 years. The video I'm about to show you is, I think, as you will even see from the quality of it and the aspect ratio and all that, I think it was filmed in like 1999. So it's like, it's, it's quite old. It's ancient by today's standards, right? Um, and so here's what I want you to do. I'm going to set, set this up. It's just about 30 seconds long or so. But he kind of sets up this little uh, social experiment. And all you have to do, here's, here's the call for all of you. Now, if you know this and you're like, don't shout out, all right? But like, if you know the answer. But... It's going to come on the screen. It's literally going to say this. Count how many times. There's going to be a group of people, all right, that are wearing white T-shirts. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the basketball, all right? So what, about 30 seconds. See if you get the answer right. All right, eternal life hinges on the, no, I'm just kidding, all right? So, um, but just go with me for a moment. Here you go. How many times? Count how many times the players wearing white pass the basketball. How many passes did you count? All right. Anyone want to shout it out? How many? Come on. All right. Yes, the correct answer is 15 passes. Congratulations. Round of applause for the people that know how to count. All right. There you go. Um, now, watch this. There's a second part to this. Here's the second part the of the video. The correct answer is 15 passes. But did you see the gorilla? All right, come on, true confession, how many of you did not see the gorilla? Be, no shame here, all right, there you go, okay, see? All right, now, as he does this experiment over, over the years, all right, he regularly finds in groups like this, upwards of about 50% or so of people will not actually see the gorilla. So it's less about how many passes, all right? Now, what's fascinating in this, and the reason for showing you this kind of silly example is, all right, we're all looking at the same thing, and a lot of times when we get busy in life, right, there are lots of details that you and I have to pay attention to. And there are good things. You were asked to count that. And that's, that's fine and that's good in and of itself. 
But I think there are needs that are all around us that if I had told you prior to the video, hey, keep your eyes open, there's going to be a man in a gorilla suit, you would not have missed it, right? You'd be like, okay, there's a basketball, oh, right? You'd be like, okay, I see the gorilla. We have to ask the Lord to tune our minds, our eyes, our ears, to be able to, to see and to hear and to perceive. There is a need all around us. There is strangers all around us. And it is as obvious as a gorilla walking through in this social experiment. But because I get busy and because you get busy and we get focused on other things at times, I think we sometimes can miss what is right in front of us. And the Lord is calling us to see all the men saw, but only the Samaritan really saw. And his seeing that led him to stopping. Unlike the others who pass by, he enters in. And the stopping, let's be honest, it was a massive inconvenience. The Samaritan was not traveling that road, that dangerous stretch of highway, just because he's like, I'm gonna go out for a walk. There would have been easier places to walk, more scenic places to walk, more, you know, less dangerous places to walk. He had somewhere where he needed to be. He had things on his agenda. There were things that he needed to attend to. And what did he do? He stops and he enters in. But it's not just that he stops and is willing to be inconvenienced. As we think about extending hospitality, I don't think we should sugarcoat this. I don't think we should say, hey, go and do it. It's completely easy. No, no. You're going to have to see people's needs. You're going to have to stop you and I being afraid of people that are different than us. We're actually going to have to stop and be willing in both the reactive times when things happen where it wasn't on our agenda and also in the intentional times of saying, we're gonna put this on the calendar. We're gonna get this coffee with this person. We're gonna invite this person over. We're gonna have that conversation. We're gonna engage in things in our neighborhood, in our community, but it's gonna cost. And so there's a stopping for the stranger and with the Samaritan, there is a sacrificing for the stranger that he stoops down and he takes the resources that he has of the wine and the oil and begins to tend to the man's wounds, dealing with the potential danger that was still around him. Then he puts the man on his own animal and so now he's forced to walk while this man is being transported, all right? So he's taking care of his transportation needs. He's taking care of his, of his health. He's getting them and he's taking care of some of his housing needs, putting him up in this inn, gives him a significant amount of money. I mean, the Samaritan had worked two full days for this amount and he's like, here you go. And when I come back, I'll make sure that we get squared away. Are you sacrificing for the stranger? And so let's, again, let's not idealize this as if, you know what, hospitality, a moving toward a love of the stranger, it is easy. Like, come on, get on board. It's perfectly easy. It won't cost you anything. It'll feel amazing 100% of the time, guaranteed. It's not true. And yet Jesus tells this parable and ends it by saying, okay, go and do likewise. That this is a call for us. And so here's what I want to wrestle with for just a couple minutes here. What in the world might this look like in our context? Because if you and I wait for, okay, we get it. Let's take the parable literally. I promise you, Lord Jesus, this week, if I see a man bleeding out on the side of the road, I will stop, okay? Now, I hope you do, all right? You can pray that and commit to that, all right? But more often than not, that is not our reality. You and I don't most of the time see somebody bleeding out on the side of the road and see religious leaders pass by and we're like, hey, I'm gonna step in, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. So, what might it look like? I think there's a million ways. I think there's tons of things you can explore. And I think there's all sorts of creativity that the Lord has blessed this group of people with. He, if you're a follower of him, you have the Holy Spirit residing in you. I'm trusting right now the Holy Spirit is even bringing things to mind, bringing people to mind, creativity, ideas, all kinds of things. Awesome. But I'll talk just kind of two very practical things, things that we have an opportunity for. One, the first thing I want to share is like every single week, all right? 
And I don't know if you think about it this way, but what if you and I, if this is your home church, all right, what if you and I had a shift in our mindset where we viewed every time we walk into the doors of the YMCA and we come here, all right, and we do all that it takes to like get out the door and get here, but we viewed ourselves not as guests coming in, but rather, all right, we are hosts. And we're here to welcome. And so even weekly in the gathering that is this church service, the church is not just this gathering. It's more than that. But this gathering matters. And oftentimes this is sort of the front door for people to get further connected. And now if you're here this morning, you're like, hey, this is not my home church. I'm just checking this out. Maybe I'm new to it. This call that I'm talking about here, all right, it's a call that you can engage in as well. And if the Lord should call you to be connected to this church, we, we wanna help that. We don't wanna hinder that in any way. Don't take this in any way as like, okay, well, there's these projects that are coming. No, no, there are image bearers of God that are gonna walk through the doors every single week. And our opportunity is to welcome them as we've been welcomed. So every single week, you have an opportunity for hospitality when you think about it in this context. You're like, well, I'm not on the connections team. Are you a follower of Jesus? You're on the connections team, all right? Like there is a call to welcome. And so there's an article that was going around on Desiring God by an author named Rebecca McLaughlin, I believe is her, her name. And I love the summation that she gave. And so I'm just gonna rip this off, although I'm giving her credit, but here it is up on the screen. She's like, here's the three rules. Sunday morning, think through this, all right? Somebody that is alone is an emergency. So her and her husband regularly talk about this when they walk in, all right? If they see somebody by themselves, somebody like, wondering where to go or whatever it happens to be, somebody by themselves is an emergency, all right? Now, that doesn't mean you don't, you can, you can read the room if they're like, hey, just bug off a little bit. Okay, fine, but, but also know this, across the spectrum of introvert to extrovert, everybody's created in the image of God, longing for connection, belonging, and so somebody that's alone is an emergency. She tells the story of how there have been people numerous times that have come up and said to her, like, are you and your husband okay? And she's like, why? She's like, well, you weren't sitting together at church. She's like, yeah, we have an agreement. Like, if somebody's by themselves, I'm gonna get up and go, or he's gonna go, right? And so, an alone person is an emergency. And then second rule, friends can wait. They'll still be your friend after the service. This is not the primary time to just engage them. And I hope there's fellowship and all, all of that. And usually what can happen is that will also happen while these things happen as well, but we have to be intentional. And so an alone person is an emergency. Friends can wait. And then the way you bring those things together is you have opportunity, like you have social capital. You know some people, all right? And you maybe get talking to somebody and you, they have an interest. And you're like, I know nothing about that or I don't have that particular interest, all right? Um, but maybe there's somebody that you do know. You have a network, you have some social capital. Like how do you make introductions and make connections? So there's hospitality there. So it encourages us in that regard. Not because it's projects, it's because there's people made in the image and likeness of God and we wanna welcome them. We wanna show them the love of God. And I wanna talk this. What might it look like in the neighborhood? So this, that was Sunday morning, all right? It's not the only way, but that's some, I think, key things to even mind. What about in the neighborhood? Acts 17 tells us that God has determined the very time and places in which you and I live. And so the job you have, the neighborhood you live in, the school you attend, all that stuff. God's placed you there. You've been placed there if you're a Christian as a missionary. So one of the things, as we look out and we're like, yeah, I don't see somebody bleeding out on the side of the road. If we had eyes to see though, I think we'd see more of that. I was listening to a short lecture this past week by the uh, senator from Nebraska named Ben Sass, and he, he spoke about the loneliness epidemic. 
And in this short teaching, here's what he began to describe. He said for three years, this was given at the beginning of 2019, he said for three straight years now, 2016, 2017, 2018, the life expectancy in the United States of America has been on the decline. And he's like, the great mystery of this decline. He said it's only ever happened one other time and it was in the early 60s for two years and it was a massive flu uh, virus bug that went around and it kind of spanned kind of December and into the, the new year and wiped out a lot of people. But he's like, besides that, this is the first time, like three years and it's declining. And he's like, you look around, you're like in the earliest stages of life, kind of up to one years old, he's like, it's safer than ever. It doesn't mean bad things don't happen, but by and large, it's getting more and more safe for the child, for the mother, all of these things. And then towards the latter years of life, life is being extended. He's like, so we're making progress on the front end of life. We're making tons of progress sort of towards the, the back end of life. And yet in the middle, he said, we're living in this crisis where there is the, 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 like the life expectancy rate is plummeting primarily amongst the 25 to 45 year olds. And as they study it, here's the things that they're finding. He said, it's around suicide, it is around opi opioid addiction, and then other addiction, drugs, alcohol, various things, and then uh, liver damage, liver disease. And he's like, these things, what it's speaking to, all right, is a decline, it's, it's rooted in despair. And as he looks out over, and I don't think this is unique to him, as we look out across our cultural moment, People long for belonging. We want to be welcomed in. And yet there's a loneliness epidemic. There's a collapse of place, a collapse of community that is taking place. And as the church, we have an opportunity to step in and to say, no, we want to help bring the presence of God as the people of God sent on this mission. And so very practically as a church, how can you and I step into places in our neighborhood, wherever God has put us, and we're not gonna overly script this, all right, but we wanna try and just give some handles for us a ways to think about this as a church, all right? And so even as a church, we come up with like, for our staff, like some, what are the next 90 day goals and things? And so I wanna put something before you for kind of roughly the next 90 days, and I hope it will continue, but we're gonna try this for these initial three months, September, October, uh, in November, um, I think things might naturally happen in the month of December anyway, and December is just kind of crazy, but all right, so it doesn't mean no hospitality in December. We're kind of thinking, hey, you probably have things, maybe some of you even already on the calendar, you planners, okay? Um, but what if we did this? That we, as if you're a follower of Jesus said, hey, let's just, let's gather around the table. And we've done things like that in the church, but it's been primarily like within the church community, all right? This is you and I making commitment to say, hey, the third week of the month, we're gonna help promote this, we're gonna help resource you with, with this, some things to be thinking through, but who can you have over for dinner? And if you see the picture there, there's an intentionality. I don't know if you can, how clearly you can see it. It's pizza, right? You don't have to have pizza, you might hate pizza. I'm just trying to tell you, if you've got some image in your mind that is this ornate, like, you know, you just cooking for days, all right, just slaving away in the kitchen. Like, do away with that notion. Call Papa John's and invite your neighbor over, right? Or whatever it happens to be. Like, it can be as simple as possible. Now, if you wanna go and do the other thing, that's, that's amazing too. But let's dispel this sort of notion that has to look a certain way, that has to be Instagram worthy of some sort, all right? Now, if you're like, well, what if I can't do it the third week of the month, but I had somebody else over it, does that count? It does count, right? Um, and not that we're counting, okay? Just, there's this call. But think about it. In our culture that increasingly is lacking sort of social capital, relational connections, where there's a collapse that's happening, there's more and more isolation, 
What an amazing opportunity. If we think even initially over this three-month period, and that continues on, hundreds of meals in a culture where the very fabric has been torn apart, we have an opportunity to see that rewoven, that might strengthen. This doesn't mean at the end of the meal you got to do an altar call, all right? What this means is you're simply inviting people in, you're extending hospitality. It could be a large group, it could be a small group, but you are strengthening the very neighborhood where God has placed you by loving people. That's just what we want to step into as a church. Now, in all of this, we'll close this way. There's a cost with this. And we might be, some of you might be initially like, ooh, I'm excited about that, all right? Some of you might be terrified by it or somewhere in between our ultimate motivation, regardless of how excited or not excited you happen to be, is we have to go back and we have to see ourselves rightly in this story. Because if there's any part of us that's like, yep, I'll be like the Good Samaritan, that's not the purpose of this story. Jesus said, go and do likewise, but he also knows the reality of the human condition. And he understands that we are people that are in desperate need. Your place in the story and my place in the story, we're the man that's been beat up and left half for dead. Through our rebellion, through our rejection of God, through everything that we brought upon ourselves, that's the reality of the situation. And so we have to rightly see, I love the way the prophet Isaiah speaks of it in Isaiah 55. Come though, here's the invitation. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Until you and I come to the point of realizing we've got no money, we've got nothing to offer, we're lying half dead on the side of the road, until we come to that point, we won't actually be ready to extend hospitality. We won't recover hospitality. We won't help people experience belonging. But when you and I see that we've been rescued, that God in the greatest act of hospitality ever, the Father sent his son to love the stranger, and not just a stranger, but an enemy, there's this fascinating word it says and when he saw him the Samaritan it says he had compassion and there's this word splotnizomai I'm not even saying that correctly right but it's a fun word to say splotnizomai and it's this idea of like kind of like the, your very gut essence like the your like bowels almost like it's moved to this point of like I have to go and do something and know this it wasn't just the good Samaritan that's ultimately pointing to our good king that is Jesus that was moved at the depth of his being, had such compassion that he looked at you on the side of the road and me on the side of the road bleeding out and in that greatest act of hospitality said, I will enter in, I will love the stranger, I will love the enemy, I will move towards them at great cost to myself, I will empty myself so that this person can be welcomed in and taken care of. When that grips our heart, when that warms our heart, suddenly our homes become much more open. And suddenly the door is open a lot more. And suddenly we're less fearful of people. Romans 5 eight says it this way. For while we were still weak, do you see yourself that way? At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not for the good people that had it all figured out. Right? None of those exist anyway. But for the ungodly. For one, he says, will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were what? While we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. 
Not when you cleaned yourself up, not when you said, hey, Jesus, can I join your team? I've got some good things to offer. When you're bleeding out on the side of the road, he moved towards you in hospitality. He welcomed the stranger. He died for the stranger. He died for us as his enemies. And then he rose again and he conquered Satan's sin and death. And he's coming back one day in the story of the Bible. When we invite people in and we give them, whether it be pizza or leftovers or some ornate meal, it's just a foretaste of the feast that is coming. The Bible uses that imagery all the way through because what is coming at the end is the Lord himself coming back, dwelling with us, offering us an amazing feast, and we want more people around that table. And it starts with opening up our table and our home and welcoming people in and seeing what the Lord might do. And so I want to close in prayer. I want to give you a couple moments to, to respond. When I come back up, would you do me a favor? If you've got elementary kids, when I come back up to introduce communion, you can go get them now, but just let's right now Take this one minute or so and just be still and quiet and reflect and ask the Lord in these ways, like, what do I need to confess? What do you need to celebrate about the Lord's provision? And what can you commit to? How might you be a good neighbor? Let me pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace toward us. Jesus, thank you for your willingness to leave everything. From the very beginning, you've known this this Trinitarian love and community and yet you were willing to come and to enter in on our behalf so we might find life and you were willing to be forsaken by the Father to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To take the wrath that should have been poured out on us and said it was poured out on you so that we can be welcomed at the table. So God, would you continually by the power of your spirit remind us even now of the spot that you've made for us and how you want to use us as your missionaries, as your ambassadors, as your hosts to welcome people in. God, I pray for any here this morning that feel like they're just trying to do it in their own strength, but they see themselves rightly this morning and that Jesus, you're welcoming them to the table, that you're welcoming them to the family. May they come to trust in you. And God, for those of us that are followers of you, may our hearts continually be warm to the reality of the gospel, that you're a hospitable God and that you love to spend time with us, to hear from us, that you care deeply for us. And so I pray, God, that you would hear our prayers now, that you would get your glory, and that we as your people would experience a great joy. Hear us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.